What is up to all my homies? Welcome back to another episode of Life in Paradise podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Harper. Today's Sunday, July 17th, 2022. And I missed a week and I apologize, but I'm back. I'm back. And if it makes you feel any better, I have not taken a day away from the brewery in like four and a half weeks, maybe five weeks. So I come here to do this podcast and get things off my chest because I'm just a regular dude with lots and lots of opinions. And I'm of the opinion that we can all disagree without being disagreeable. So I come here to expose some of my controversial thoughts and unpopular opinions in hopes that you may not agree but still understand. So I appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for your time. I know there are lots of places where you can go to listen to people rant. And I'm appreciative that you've chosen me. If there's one thing you'll know about me, it's that I don't do pre-recorded intros. Never forget that. But you didn't come to hear me talk about not doing pre-recorded intros. You came to hear me get things off my chest. And that's what I'm finna do. Got a few things to touch on today. Might be a short show, might be a long show. We'll just have to wait and see. Thanks again for listening to Life in Paradise podcast. Sit back, relax, and let me do the talking, and you do the thinking for the next 30 to 45 minutes. Man, man, man. You know what it is? You know what it is, dog? It is hot outside, and I know you're thinking, dude, you live in South Texas. It's July. Of course it's hot outside, but I don't know. I feel like it's hotter every year. It gets hotter and hotter. Of course, that's anecdotal, and I'm not saying the climate is melting. I'm just saying that my grass is melting because we don't get any rain. It's so crunchy. I have not needed to mow my grass for like three and a half, four weeks. It is insane. I have these little plants, you know, I'm trying to learn to be a better gardener and apparently it is just not something that I'm gifted with because everything that I've tried to grow has run into headwinds and very, very seldom have I been successful, but I've got these container buckets, old five gallon buckets from the brewery that I brought home. I put rocks in the bottom of them. I filled them up with soil. I planted little baby plants and water them every day. And it's so hot that I'm having to water them twice a day just to keep them alive. I had one little tomato plant. It gave me no tomatoes. None. So you know what? Off with its head. You're not going to make fruit. You're going into the mulch bin. But I've got a couple other pepper plants that are putting out some nice peppers. And, you know, in the summertime, I like to have a little fresh pepper with every meal. And you take a bite of your meal and you take a bite of your pepper. That's how we do it in South Texas, if you didn't know. But all kidding aside... I'm terrible at growing plants. I wish I were better. You know, some people have the green thumb. And you can't have it all, right? I mean, I can train dogs. I can keep them alive for a long time. But I am not good with plants. And I haven't had the best track record with cats either. But, you know, there's nothing I can do different. With a cat, you just keep them fed and you hope they stay alive. And, you know, old Corn Pop, he's still hanging in there. He's going on a year and a half strong. So, (laughs) Go, going by my record, he's got about six months left. 
I'm just kidding. I had one cat named Trevor who lived to be about four, and that's that's the longest I've ever kept a cat alive. And, and I don't know why. I love cats. I would do things, you know, I'd take them to the vet. I'd keep whatever I got to do to keep them alive. I would do it. But I just I just walk home sometimes. Or I've come home and to find a dead cat, and you know, I didn't know it was sick. And maybe it's maybe it's because I've never had a lot of cats, so I don't know what a sick cat looks like. A dog, man, I can tell you. I can tell you by the way a dog approaches his food bowl or where he stands when I'm fixing his food, whether or not he's about to eat. And for me, the number one sign of whether or not a dog is healthy is his excitement about his food. And, man, I can spot him from a mile away. I remember when old Bronco decided he was going to quit eating. And I could, I could tell the day, the day that he decided not to eat, he was less excited in his food, I was like, man, this is it. This is it. He didn't want to eat anymore. And you just you deal with it, you know. You you make the decision with an old dog of if you're going to try to chase a sickness and and get them fixed and put them through all that, or you're not. And in my case, Bronco lived a great life, and I feel like if I could have asked him, "Hey, dude, you want me to put you through the ringer to try to keep you alive another six months?" He'd have said, "Nah, I'm good." So that was the end of old Bronco's life, and I've talked about it. I think last last show, which was a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, every week that goes by, it's a little bit easier to get through, but it all boils down to time. You know, as time goes on, it heals wounds. And so I'm sure I'll tell more and more Bentley and Bronco stories, but for now, one, one per show's enough. Anyway, I feel like I'm kind of rambling. I've got some great stuff to get to today. I think it's great. You may not think it's great, and I'm okay with that. But while I'm on the topic of myself, my note, my note for this segment is called Everything in my life is broken. <laughs> and you know those times in your life where you're just kind of going along and when it starts raining and then it starts pouring and then it starts flooding and then you start swimming and then you get tired of swimming. Yeah, that's how it's kind of been with me the last couple of weeks. I'll just give you the highlights. I'll save you the drama. So you already knew about having to put Bentley and Bronco down. That was a rough patch. That was tough. My gate going into my backyard broke, and it's a, it's a drive-through gate. It's like an electric gate that swings open, and you drive through. And the way my house is set up, the driveway goes into the back area. Now, it's not some big, giant mansion or courtyard or anything like that. It's just that my house uh, sits on two lots wide. So I basically have a, an entrance and all the parkings in the back. So the electric gate broke. Right now I'm hopping in and out every time with a bungee cord, opening the gate and closing the gate. I ordered parts to fix the gate, but then I realized I didn't have the right tools to put the parts on. So, the gate's broken. My dogs had to get put down. What else is broken? My dryer broke. It wouldn't blow hot air. I had to schedule a guy to come out and fix it. And I was like, I know what's going to happen. He's going to come out. He's going to say, yep, it needs a part. But, uh, you know, they're all backordered and we don't know where they are. But that's not what happened. It, it worked out great. He had a part on his truck. He fixed it and he left. So, things are starting to look back up. Another thing that was broken was one of the engines on the must-be-crazy catamaran down in Nicaragua. It was getting rebuilt. And so the boat was down. And when the boat's down, it doesn't produce any money. But the people who work for the boat still need to get paid. So that was broken. Luckily, that's now been fixed. The new motor's been rebuilt, put back in the boat. And we are up and running again. So really, the last thing left to fix is the broken gate. And I've already made contact with a gate repair guy. We've been playing phone tag, so hopefully he'll get back with me and we'll get it sorted out. But I've been working so much that 
you know, when something goes wrong, it's hard to it's hard to get it fixed because you just you're gone all the time. You're working. I mean, I hadn't bought groceries in two weeks. Finally, I sat down today and ordered some groceries online. But you know what? I'm not complaining. This is what I signed up for. It. I'm signed up for this. I'm doing it. I'm doing the brewery thing. And you know, sometimes you make decisions and you learn lessons, and you just gotta swallow them and keep on going. And if you think about it, life and whether or not you're successful in life and the things you accomplish in life and the things you choose in life all boil down to just the decisions that you make. And I've always found it very interesting to think about, you know, certain points in your life where you're, you reached a crossroads or, or a critical moment. And looking back on it, you know, you, at the time you thought it was a little bitty decision, but that small decision led you to things that changed your life forever. And it's like that movie, The Butterfly Effect. It's a really good movie, but it, it kind of follows that premise. Like the decisions that you make right now, even if you think they're small, can end up being big. And also the inverse holds true. Sometimes you're faced with decisions that you think are huge and you don't know what you're going to do and you fret and you sweat and you worry. And then you look back on it 10 years down the road and you thought, wow, that, I remember thinking that was going to be a huge decision and it ended up not, not being that big of a deal. But yeah, life is just a series of decisions. And that's what I think when you look at someone and you, you, you say, are they successful? And I don't mean successful by do they make lots of money. I mean, are they, are they financially stable? And does, you don't have to have lots of money for that to happen. It just means that you, you, you cover all your debt and you make a little bit more and you're comfortable, right? Are you financially stable? Does your, does your cell phone stay cut on? Do you have a car that's running properly and nothing's broken? You know, all these little things just boil down to the decisions that you make. And if people aren't taught how to make decisions, chances are they'll make bad decisions. Because making decisions is something that requires practice. And this is why I think that these helicopter parents who, who shield their kids from all kinds of evil and scary things, they end up doing their kids a disservice because their kids aren't equipped to deal with adversity and uncertainty. And I know that most parents don't understand this. And I know what you're thinking right now. Hey, Brandon, what do you know about parents? You're just a dog trainer. Well, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two, and I won't go into them right now. But I used to say, I know, I know, just because I don't have kids doesn't mean I, you know, I, I know that I'm a dog trainer and I don't have kids. But now I say, you know what? I think I know a lot about kids because I'm a good dog trainer. And you don't have to agree. That's okay. You don't have to agree with me. But going back to my point, and you're thinking, which one, dude? You made like 10 points. You're all, you're all over the place right now. And I know. I get it. But going back to my point, teaching kids how to make decisions, is, is the, that is the responsibility of a parent. That's your job. Teach them how to make good decisions. Everything else will fall into place. Because making good decisions is things like the value of work ethic, honesty, integrity. All those fall under the umbrella of great decisions. And so if you just teach your kid to make good decisions... Everything else will fall into place. And I remember specifically when I was a little kid, you know, and, and I'd go out to eat with my, my friends and their parents would order for them and the kids didn't think about what they wanted. The, the parents would say, well, do you want chicken nuggets or you want a cheeseburger? And the little kid would say, cheeseburger. And then the parent would order for the child and say, he'll have a cheeseburger. But in my case, and I'm not bragging. Well, I am. You know what? I am bragging on my mom right now because she took the time and she understood the importance of this. She would tell me to read the menu. 
She would tell me to decide what I wanted, and she would look at me when the waiter came up to indicate that I need to order. And so I learned how to do things like look at the menu and order for myself. And, and I know you're probably thinking like, well, that's not anything special. Everyone does that. Sure, I, I agree. But I do think it gives you the ability to react in a situation with a strange person when you're uncomfortable and you're this little kid and a grown-up is coming to you asking you questions and your parent teaches you, don't look at me, he's talking to you, look him in the eye, order what you want, if you have questions, ask him. You know, it's the little things like that that equate into big decisions because, I mean, I've, I've been faced with some pretty big decisions in my life and I make them with confidence and I move forward. And I know that sometimes they were the wrong decisions and I get that. But if I didn't have the confidence to, to make the decision, the, the worst thing you can do is not make a decision, right? When something goes wrong or things don't go as planned, the, thing, the worst you can do is just clam up and not do anything because that will just cause things to fester and get bigger and more awkward. You know, it's when you're, you're playing hooky and you get caught and you don't, you don't come clean. You just start telling one lie after another after another. And now you're in trouble for playing hooky and lying instead of just playing hooky. So that's, that's my commentary on making good decisions. And this is not even in my notes. I don't know how I got here. But if you're a parent, just teach your kid how to make good decisions. The rest will fall into place. I feel really bad for for kids who have parents that teach them things like stealing, you know, and things like ripping people off. I heard a comment on the radio the other day about, you know, some person following another person and saying, "Well, I mean, if somebody drops money, I'm picking it up and putting it in my pocket." And I and I don't know how people end up there or I guess it was how they were raised, but it just seems like the right thing to do is to pick it up and, and tell the person, hey, hey, you dropped this because one day you're going to drop money. It'll be really nice if someone tells you, hey, you dropped your money. And, and not that doing it will have an effect on whether or not someone does it to you, but if everyone could all agree to just return money when people dropped it, the world would be a better place. And that's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say about raising your kids coming from someone who doesn't even have kids. Okay, on to the next topic. If you've been listening long enough to enough shows, you'll be well aware of my opinion in regards to kind of the, the era that this country is facing, the next chapter of our country's storybook. And what I think is going to happen is that we are we're going to look back. Okay, so we're going to go forward 10 years from right now. So from 2022 to 2032, or somewhere in there, 2028, maybe 8 to 10 years from now, we're going to look back on the, the period, and it's going to be called the Great Reset. And I'm sure you've heard this term thrown around, and people have said it, but I think that we're, we're on the edge of it. And I hate to be doom and gloom. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news or negativity or saying, oh, a whole country's just going to hell. That's, you know, that's, that's not what I do. But I do take a lot of interest in the macro economy what's happening global what's happening global you see how my mind doesn't always work with the same speed as my, as my mouth what's happening globally the things that are breaking down around the country or around the world rather and i'm of the opinion that you can't just have this much chaos that we're having right now and just have some fairy tale soft landing so for those who haven't heard yet, I'm going to tell you about Sri Lanka. And then I'm going to go back to 
my whole theory on this whole chaos world that we're in right now. So, so right now, Sri Lanka, their government, their economy is collapsing. And what's happened was, well, a couple, a couple things, but it, it would take 30 minutes for me to go into all of it. So I'm going to give you the kind of the brief rundown. There's two big reasons why Sri Lanka is collapsing. And one of them, the media will not talk about. They will a little bit. Depends on who you listen to. But the two main reasons that Sri Lanka is collapsing, and they, I think they like stormed the president's house. They ran him out of the country. He fled the country. So everyone's fed up with the way things are going there. And this is just one country. Italy's having problems. All the Eurozone is having problems. So uh, Russia's getting ready to maybe or maybe not cut off 40% of Europe's gas flow. And so there's all these things right now that are just looking down the barrel of a loaded gun. But going back to Sri Lanka, so what happened was they they were given one of the highest ESG scores around the world. And what that stands for is Environmental, Social, and Governance. And this is a, a pretend or a made-up stupid score that all the suits on Wall Street have started giving companies and or countries to rank them as to how green they are, how green they are, how friendly they are, how good they are to the environment. And I know it sounds great, but it's got its drawbacks. I'm going to show you how it backfired on Sri Lanka. If you've never heard of Sri Lanka, it's just a tiny country right outside China. It's a little island in the, uh, in the South Pacific. So think like Indonesia and, th- and that type. Tibet, you know, just a Central Asian country. And they're an island, so they don't have a lot of, they don't have a huge economy. You know, island countries struggle with big economies because they're, they're literally an island, so it's hard for them to move things around. They don't have a lot of real estate to grow things. And so this also applies to Sri Lanka. So they're one of the highest ESG score countries all over the world, maybe the highest. I think they were actually higher than Norway. But so they were given a 98. And so... What that does is allows people or investment firms who feel good about investing in, in green energy and, and all these anti-global warming movements, if they, they know, okay, I can invest my money in Sri Lanka and know that they're not going to destroy the environment. Well, here's what happened. Sri Lanka said, hey, guys, guess what? We're so green. Look at us. We're going to ban chemical fertilizers from our entire country. And even though our economy rides on the farming of lentils and rice, we're not going to use any more chemicals. We're going to go all organic. All right? Sounds great, right? So here's what happened. First of all, the cost of fertilizer is way more when you buy organic fertilizer than you do chemicals. Harder to produce, takes longer to make, all that. So what happened, and also you get lower yields. So... The country banned the chemical fertilizers. Everyone goes out and gets their organic fertilizer. So what happened? The yields went down. The amount of rice and the amount of lentils that they produced was 25 to 30% less of what they normally produce. And so since they rely so heavily on that, they were, they were actually a net exporter, which means they made so much rice and lentils, they were able to sell it outside the country to other countries who needed to import it. But this year... Since their yields were so low, the price went through the roof. And so that's such a staple in people's diets that if price fluctuates, it, it causes serious fluctuations to the family's bottom line. So 
Price goes through the roof. They didn't even have enough to meet their own demand. So they had to turn into a rice and lentil importer. So they had to go buy their rice and lentils from other countries. Where does that money come from? Well, this is part of the problem. The government went and borrowed the money to import the rice and lentils so their people wouldn't starve to death. Well, they couldn't pay back the loans. They defaulted on all their debt. It's like you going to borrow money to buy groceries and then keep borrowing money to buy groceries, borrowing money to buy groceries, and then all of a sudden you, you can't pay back your debt anymore. Well, now you can't buy groceries, and so you're going you're gonna to go hungry. So that's one issue. Another issue was that China does what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And what that is is they'll go into a country and they say, oh, we see you need road. Road better for you, better for China. We loan you money, you build road. You pay back road eventually, everything all good. But the Chinese know that people can't pay back the debt. And so what happens is they go, they build this road, they take over these resources, and then whenever the countries that they go do this to can't support the debt, they say, okay, now road, everything, all the resources belong to China. And they take control over it. And this helps China acquire the resources that they don't have within their own country. See, China isn't nearly as resource-rich as a lot of countries its size. So they got to figure out how to procure it from other places. Well, this is one of their scams. They do this. They take control. They're now in charge. They've done this with all the mines in Africa. They do it all over the world. And so China went in and built all this infrastructure. Well, for whatever reason, Sri Lanka decided they were going to pay the debt even though they were not in the financial position to do it. So they wrote a check to China, covered all their debt, but now they're freaking broke and they have no money to buy rice. And so there was a lot of criticism that maybe the government was corrupt and they were paying China so that the the politicians could get kickbacks from the Chinese after they got paid off. That part I'm not as certain about. I don't that doesn't really matter to me. Corruption's everywhere. Wouldn't surprise me if they were. I don't care what their motivation was for paying back China. My whole point is the whole environmental movement, there is a cost associated with this. You see, the free market will find the most efficient way to allocate resources. When you step in and you impose regulations or rules in place that say, oh, no, no, you, you're not allowed to do this if you want to do that. There is always a cost associated to that. And this example about Sri Lanka proves my point because... We all know that organic fertilizer doesn't work as well as chemical fertilizer. And you might think, yeah, but it's worth it because it's healthy and we're killing the earth and everything's being depopulated. Well, that's fine. That's your opinion. But you have to think about countries like Sri Lanka and Indonesia who they don't have enough money to save the earth. They need all the efficiency they can get because everything depends on one product, rice or lentils. It's just like the example I've used in the past. Like try going to a, a farmer who uses oxen to pull his plow in Indonesia and tell him that he's not allowed to buy a tractor, even if he has the money, because it, you know, it, it ruins the environment. So we have to draw the line. We have to say, hey, the more you enforce these things, the more it's going to affect the people. And you see the same thing in the, um, I think it's what, the Dutch... The Dutch tractor, the Dutch farmers in the Netherlands, they're trying to impose all these rules and regulations on what you can and can't use in farming. And all the farmers are saying, yo, bro, time out. All these regulations that you want to put in place, those sound great, but it's going to put us out of business because the cost at which 
we produce things exceeds the sales price. Therefore, we will go backwards. We will lose money if we play by your rules. And the uh, government's like, well, you know, some some farmers are going to have to go away. Yeah, it's real easy for them to say. You know why? Because they're not freaking farmers. They couldn't grow anything to save their life. Not that I could either, but I understand that farmers are badasses. So anyway, that's what's happening in Sri Lanka. And the reason that the media doesn't tell you about it, well, I've found it on some left-leaning media outlets, but they leave out the entire part about the, the government mandating organic fertilizer. They just say, oh, well, prices went up. Yeah, but they don't say why. There's only one reason why prices went up, and it has nothing to do with Ukraine and Russia, which, man, every country right now is loving having that situation to blame things on because they don't have to take the fall, including your president, oh, mushy brain Biden. Every other word is blaming Putin, Russia, and Ukraine. And I think deep down inside that that's why they support this war because it gives them a scapegoat, gives them something to blame things on because these people are not leaders. They're a bunch of whiny babies. So going back to my opening point, I think this is just the beginning of what what we will know is the Great Reset. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen. But I think the world is due for, for kind of like a shakeup, a restructuring, you know, if you look at um, an environment, whether it be an ant mound or something like that, like every so often things just get shaken up. And that's just the, the world that we live in. That's just the, the chaotic world that we live in. Things don't just behave perfectly forever. You know, bugs get hit by cars. Butterflies get eaten. Like things just, things change always and nothing goes perfect forever. So even if you don't believe me, you think I'm an idiot, think I'm just making things up, you think the world's going to be the best place forever, think about something else in nature that doesn't deal with adversity or a big shakeup. You know, fish <laughs> fish will go bite a piece of bacon, they get ripped out of the water by a hook because they get caught. You know, sometimes birds get blown out of trees. Like, things happen, and the only thing we're guaranteed is uncertainty. And if you look at things like the way that we do money, our, our monetary system is so convoluted. It's so manipulated. And remember that economics has laws. It's not just theory. We know that if one thing happens, it will cause this to happen. This is why you're seeing 9% inflation. It has nothing to do with Putin or the war. It has to do with shutting down the economy for something we should not have shut it down for and printing money at the exact same time. The backlash of those two are the horrendous inflation that we're having. And who knows? You know what? I hope I'm wrong. I hope my theory is incorrect. I completely missed the mark. There's people out there that are way smarter than me, and I hope that they've got it sorted out. Because the worst-case scenario, you don't want to be here, and I don't want to be here either. And I'm just going to leave that at that. But if you combine that, all the, the chaos that's happening around the world with the way that our country is currently divided and the way that people are fighting with each other about every single thing, and this is all caused from social media. I've covered this plenty of times, but if you combine those two uh, catalysts, it, it just seems likely to me that things are about to change. And maybe it's just going to be a slow, slow, gradual change, and that would be, that would be second best case scenario. 
first best scenario would be things just kind of go back to the way they were in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And we don't really know why they just do. That would be the best case scenario. Second, second best case would be that things gradually change to get us to the bottom that I think we're going to be at. Worst case scenario is that things just happen overnight. But there's an example that I wanted to use, and that is the Texas Restaurant Association PAC. And I know that's a bunch of gobbledygook. But the, the TRA, Texas Restaurant Association, is a political action committee. And a political action committee takes money from certain industries. In this case, it's the restaurant and bar industry. And they take that, and then they go support politicians who they feel would would create policy and manage the state or the country in a way that most benefits that specific industry. So the Texas Restaurant Association has a political action committee. You donate money to the TRA, they go and they support the candidate. And they're not partisan. They're not, they're not like, oh, we always support the Republican, or we always support the Democrat. They are, we're going to donate money to who we feel is the best for the restaurant industry. Well, in this particular case, in Houston... The TRA PAC gave money to Greg Abbott. And so the Texas Restaurant Association members, a lot of them, got all whiny about it because Greg Abbott is against abortion. And so this is just a small example of how I think we are unable to work across the party lines. Things have just gotten so serious and we're at each other's throats so much that now we can't even, we can't ignore the fact that like, okay, so this particular governor is against abortion. But you know what? He does a lot of good things for the restaurant industry. So, you know, I'm probably never going to get an abortion. My kids are never getting an abortion. So you know what? I'm going to support, I'm going to let this pack money go to Greg Abbott. And maybe with my personal money, I'll send it to Beta. Okay, Beta O'Rourke. That way we can all just have... You know, at-will abortions, the moment we see fit without any repercussions, what, whatever. And so what I envision happening is that the PACs are going to end up being split and they'll become partisan. And then I think you're going to start seeing things. And I don't know, if I had to put a time frame on this, I would say maybe as early as 2024, but probably another four to eight years after that. I think you'll start seeing businesses declaring whether they're a red business or a blue business. And by red, I mean Republican. Blue, I mean Democrat. And you're going to be expected to say who you support and what politicians you want to push for. And that will be referred to as the Great Division. And this will lead to what I suspect will be the division of our country, whether it's geographically, whether it's by city, whether it's just by the color of the flag in front of your house. This country will be divided. It will happen again. And more than likely, there will be some big cataclysmic event that will bring the it will end the division and bring us back together. And who knows what that'll be? I don't have any idea. I don't even want to speculate on here. It would be fun to speculate in person, but I'm not certain enough to say. But something along the lines of like a nuclear bomb hits half the country, or a big uh, what is it? The Yellowstone geyser explodes, something like that. I mean, some huge event. And if you would have asked me two or three years ago, I would have said, oh, maybe like some virus, if some big virus breaks out, it'll, all, it'll bring us all together. But we can't see eye to eye on that. And I blame the media, but that's for a different day. So I'm going to move on from that. But I just wanted to share my thoughts on the, the beginning 
of the Great Reset. And, and like I said, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm usually not. All right, next topic. It's time for what I call an unpopular opinion. And, man, that's a, you're going to hear me say this. You're going to say, oh, I can't believe he said that. Can you believe he said that? I can't believe that. He's so racist. He's racist. He, I knew it. I knew he's racist. And my opinion is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with blackface. There you go. I said it. I said it. And this is just my opinion. Does this mean I hate black people? Of course not. Does this mean I'm a racist? No. Does this mean I'm KKK? Absolutely not. But just hear me out. Hear what I have to say. I once dressed up as buckwheat for Halloween. Part of my costume was painting my face black. I regret it because I used shoe polish and it took four days to get out and my face was orange like Donald Trump's. <laughs> but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, if you're dressing up as a character and you want to look just like that person, sometimes that means painting your face black. Now, if you dress up and you're just like, oh, I'm a homeless person, or I'm a rapist, or I'm a criminal, and what, I'm supposed to know that just because you're black? That, that could get a little bit dicey. But if I were to dress up as Mr. T, I mean, what, am I allowed to wear a black mask? Is that okay? If, if I put a mask on my face and the skin color of the mask is black, that's okay. Y yes or no? You have to say yes, otherwise you would hear people being chastised for wearing a mask of a black person. Maybe that's coming next. I hope not. But if someone wears blackface, everyone gets mad and bent out of shape. And I don't get it. I don't get it. The, the idea that we're judging people based on one action one time without knowing them or knowing how they feel or how they think or what they say to each other, that is the epitome of judgmental. And it's the people who scream the loudest about being judgmental who need to stand in a mirror and call the person in the mirror judgmental. Are we just going to have a rule one day that says, oh, yeah, uh, no white person is ever allowed to say they're a black person, dress similar to a black person? I mean, what if a white guy wears his pants sagging around the bottom of his ass? Is he racist? Well, I don't know. It's just style. Yeah, but there's a vast majority of people who all wear their pants that way. They happen to have the same color skin. It's part of their culture. So if someone wants to be part of that or they want to mimic it, does that make them racist if, they're, if they don't have the same skin color? No, of course not. They want to be part of it. For whatever reason, they like it. And I just think that we have to, we have to quit assigning words like racist to people when we don't really know them, we don't know what they stand for. We don't know what good things they've done in the past. We don't know anything about them. We just see that he's in one photo dressed like Mr. T with his face painted black, and now he's a racist. And what really bothers me, then the, then the people who do that and they scream the loudest are the people who just go along with it and say, I mean, I would do it, but you know, I, just, I don't want to piss anyone off. Like, have, have you no principles? Are you not willing to stand up? If you, if you have an agreement with someone, or if you feel the same way, and you're not willing to stand up for it, you're weak. You're weak. You can, you can express your opinion without being disrespectful. And I, sorry, I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel my voice getting rowdy, and I'm going to try to calm down just a little bit. So you can express your opinion without being hateful. If you can't, that, that's on you. But someone should be allowed to. Someone should be allowed to express their opinion and give them, give them a chance to prove that they're racist, right? We're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. My mom taught me one thing. Never judge a person until they talk to you. 
have a conversation with them, and then judge them. It's okay to make generalizations in your mind and predict how you think they're going to be, but don't hold them to that standard. Don't assume that they are that way. And in my opinion, that's the epitome of acceptance. The, the antithesis of acceptance is saying, Hey, look at that guy. He's got blackface on his skin. He must be racist. Yeah, he's racist. That is the epitome of judgmental. And that's what I'll say. If I ever run for office someday, and that makes it out, and there's a picture of me and my overalls and no shirt on and a huge Afro wig and my face painted black and it makes it out, I'll say, yes, you know what? You idiots, I went as freaking buckwheat, okay? He's a black kid. I was a kid. I wanted to be buckwheat because I thought he was a funny character and I liked the book. And so don't tell me I'm racist, you punks. Okay, okay. Moving along from racist talk. I've talked about skyrocketing gas prices a couple times, but I'm going to touch on it a little bit more and provide what I think the solution is. So backing up a little bit, you, if you've listened to past shows, you'll know, oh, wait, I know why prices are high. You've already told us, Brandon. I'm going to just briefly run through it. So two main reasons. One of them is because the government started subsidizing green energy. And they started pumping money into companies that make windmills and solar panels and electric cars. And they, the government says, we need to transition away from oil. So we're going to give all this money to green energy so that oil companies don't have any work. Okay, great idea. So that's what they did. Started pumping money into these industries. Well, investors saw that. They say, hey, the government is not letting these guys fail. They're going to keep making profits. So what do we do? We start funneling money too. That way when these companies are making fake profits, we get some of those fake profits. Whereas the oil industry isn't as subsidized. It's a little bit subsidized, which I disagree with, but it's not as subsidized. So all the investors went away from oil and went into green energy. This is not, this is not a theory. This is the actual truth. And so now you've got the, the oil industry globally is just it was just meeting supply and demand right before the pandemic because prices had stabilized so everyone was producing the right amount of oil to meet the right demand in just the right amount of time everything was working like a well-oiled machine which is how it's supposed to work then you have a bunch of idiots that come in wreck the economy shut off uh, uh, demand startup demand shut off demand and so you have this big rubber band train wreck effect and in the meantime, you have someone like Joe Byron who says that he wants to end fossil fuels. Those are his direct words. Well, if you end fossil fuels, you're going to shrink the supply. And we remember from Econ 101, if you shrink the supply without changing the demand, prices will go up. This is a law of economics. And some of the things he did was said, you know, no no drilling on federal lands. No drilling offshore, period. I think that was a direct quote. No, no exploration of any kind, period. Which, to say no oil exploration of any kind, period, it tells me you know less about economics than someone working at Chick-fil-A. You don't understand economics. That's not to knock anyone working at Chick-fil-A. I would be willing to bet if you went to Chick-fil-A and you interviewed them about economics, they probably wouldn't know that much because they're young teenagers. So Joe Byron knows less about economics than like an 18-year-old would be, my, would be my guess. That's my guess. So he made all this policy. 
He pumps money into an industry that couldn't fail, so all the investors followed. And in the meantime, you get this crazy shift in, in demand from, from uh, the pandemic or our reaction to the pandemic. And so if you remember from a previous segment, anytime you put policy in place, there's what? What is there? What happens when you put policy, when you put rules in place? That's right. There's a cost. Someone has to pay for it. And in this case, it's us. We're paying the price to pump because these idiots tried to, tried to build an economy of green crap and they put oil on the back burner. And with oil, you can't just turn the dial up to produce more. you got to go drill. It takes all kinds of time and energy and investing and money and capital. So uh, I'm getting kind of long-winded here. But the, my whole point is that unwinding this policy is the only solution to get oil faster. Now would be the time. If Look, I'm against subsidizing industries. I'm against giving money to companies, period, period. But in this particular case, instead of selling oil to the Chinese from our strategic petroleum reserves, we should be giving money to oil companies. We should say, hey, here's money. Go drill. Find oil. Fast. We're cutting out regulations. You know what? You can drill wherever you want to drill. And I'm being kind of extreme. I know that. But extreme reduction in policies is the fastest way to get production back up. Go incentivize them. Pull money out of the stupid green energy industry and pump it into the petroleum industry and put your hat in your hand and say, you know what, guys, that was a big mistake. We're not ready to, to make that transition yet. The transition will happen when it's time. Until then, we need to focus on efficiency and provide Americans with the cheapest possible fuel we can give them so that they can thrive and they can go to work and they can continue saving money. But no, here we are begging Saudi Arabia and Venezuela for oil. You know, it's, it's astonishing to me that people cannot see the predicament that this bad policy has gotten us into. It's astonishing. Even if it was a Republican doing this, I would be saying the same things. And this is part of the problem, is that people are not willing to look at it from a, from a macro perspective. It's all about party lines. And that will continue to add to the division until one day it fractures. Probably won't be in my lifetime. Probably won't be in your lifetime. Who knows? Maybe it will be. But it will happen. You'll mock my word. Speaking of bad policy, I'm going to play you a clip from the Democratic National Convention. And I want you to just think about it for a second. Immigration is not a right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution to everyone anywhere in the world who thinks they want to come to the United States. Immigration is a privilege. It is a privilege granted, granted by the people of the United States to those we choose to admit. Now, I know some of you heard that before, but I want to play it again. Just to prove my point, that that was from the Democrat National Convention. Oh, gosh, don't get me lying. Late 70s, early 80s. That was a lady by the name of Barbara Jordan, my favorite black woman Democrat of all time. I love her. You know why? Because listen to her policy. You see, you see how things change? Could you imagine if someone got up in front of a group of Democrats and said that exact same thing? They would be considered 
worthless. They would they would call them they're some phobic xenophobia or some kind of stupid word like that. This is how this is how much they change. This is how they change their policy in order to acquire voters. They don't stand on anything. They don't stand on values. For the record, Barbara Jordan was a lesbian, a lesbian black woman Democrat, explaining that immigration is not a right. It is a privilege. So I say all that to say this. Recently, it's been released that over 1.2 million illegal immigrants or aliens, as we call them, have been captured and released back into the U.S. Now, to put that into perspective, it's about mm, twice the size of Atlanta. Listen, in seven months, we have allowed 1.2 million people in. That's crazy. That is insane. If you don't think that will have a long-lasting effect, and listen, that's, that's only first half of the year. So let's just say they get things under control the second half of the year, and they only let 500,000 in between now and January. That's 1.7 million people. That is so many people. What does that mean? That means they, they, they show up at the hospitals. They show up at the schools. They, they don't have the ability to contribute to taxes or social systems. And unfortunately, as great as it sounds to say things like, we should just take care of everyone. There's a news flash coming. It's called, we don't have the money. Yeah, our social systems are not set up to take an influx, influx of 1.7 million people. We're not set up for it. Something's going to give. Something's going to give. It's clear to me that the Democrat Party is trying to let these people in in order to acquire voters. And maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that, well, they're just, they're, they're, they're just letting people in because they're nice and they like people. Well, that's your opinion, and I'm okay with that. Just keep in mind that Nancy Pelosi elbows little girls when they get too close to her. These people don't have any care for humanity, I promise. Remember, unwinding policy is always a solution. And the solution for these idiots to get the voters they want is to unwind the immigration policy. And it will have a backlash. It will have an effect on us. Everything you do, whenever you impose rules or restrict rules, you, it has an impact. It changes the way economies work because the free market is the most efficient way. Remember that. Okay, that's enough about that. For my next clip, I want to play Maxine Waters, okay? Maxine Waters is my least favorite, one of my least favorites. She and Sheila Jackson, my least favorite black women Democrats. Barbara Jordan is so much better of a human than these people. Barbara Jordan gave representation to the people who needed it the most. She understood poverty. She'd been around it. She'd seen it. She had a passion for helping people. And these other people, they're not the same. They're not. This particular interaction is between Maxine Waters and John Huffmeister. John Huffmeister was the former CEO of Shell Oil, okay? If anyone knows anything about oil production and selling of oil and refining of oil in the Oil Trade Commission, it's John Huffmeister, okay? He was the 
president of one of the largest oil companies in the world. Just listen. Just listen to this. What guarantees are you going to give this liberal about how that will reduce the cost of uh, of uh, gasoline at the pump if we let you drill where you say you want to drill? I can guarantee to the American people, because of the inaction of the United States Congress, ever increasing prices unless the demand comes down, and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all about? This liberal will be all about socializing, uh, um, would be about um, basically taking over and the government running all of your company. Do you need to know anything else? Is there anything else you need to hear? This stupid woman, she got so flustered and so confused, she didn't even know how to respond. So she ends up saying that we'll, uh, we'll just take over all the companies and, and let the governments run it. Now, keep in mind, this was from like, I think 2007, 2008, back when everyone was flipping out about $4 gas prices. And we said, y'all need to let us drill. Yeah, we've got to drill. We need to produce more oil. Gas prices are going to keep going up. And here is this guy arguing to this stupid woman who knows nothing about oil production, nothing about petroleum, trying to convince her that they need to relax regulations and let us drill to bring down prices. And she doesn't understand it. So she says this liberal will basically be about effectively, precisely taking over and the government running businesses. <laughs> you think that's a good idea? You think, oh, Maxine Waters needs to be in charge of anything business-related? No. No. The woman could not run a popsicle stand. I could beat her ass at a lemonade stand when I was 14. And I truly believe that. But here we are, still picking these people, voting for them for the wrong reasons. Why, why do people vote for Maxine Waters? I don't know. You tell me. I think it's because of her skin color. I think it's because she's a woman. And if we keep voting for people for the wrong reasons, we will keep having these types of results. We will keep putting people into office that have no business leading things. And it just becomes less and less surprising to me when we hear these kinds of things. I really do think if the average voter knew how stupid the average politician was, they would be up in arms. <laughs> they'd be running around with pitchforks and torches. But they don't because these politicians have a way of weaseling through the, the gambit and convincing people that they know what's best for the public. Chaps my hide, if you can't tell. So, but what's the solution? I don't know. I don't know. I hear, I hear that the solution is to get involved in politics. I don't know if I have the patience. <laughs> I don't know if I could sit in a meeting with these kinds of people and, and be a nice, sweet, friendly politician. It's not really in my blood. As one of my main man employee, Tim, says, Hey, bro, you don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> and I thought it was funny. I'd never thought of that before, but I don't. I say it like it is. But I'm still friendly. You see, there's a balance there. You don't have to be an asshole. You can be an asshole when you need to be, 
but you can be friendly and respectful and still don't sugarcoat things. And that's how I am. And I don't think everyone should be that way. But I think if you're going to lead organizations and lead people and lead communities, then you need to be able to stand on principle. And you have to be willing to get voted out in order to stand on what you believe in. And that, in my opinion, is the single biggest flaw with our politicians is that they are so focused on getting voted back into power that they'll just go with the flow and say whatever they need to say and they don't want to make anyone mad. But in reality, if everyone stood on their principles and they made their values known and we elected them based on that, that's what the government was intended to look like. Not all these used car salesmen, snake oil grifters that we just keep picking. And we wonder why gas is five fifty a gallon. I'll tell you why. We're electing pedophiles and idiots like Joe Biden. And that is it. That is all I'm going to say about our president pedophile. You don't believe me? Do your own research. It is now 8.15 p.m. on Sunday, which is kind of like my Saturday. Because I treat Mondays... Wait, am I right? Yeah, I treat Mondays kind of like Sundays. I don't... We're kind of closed at the brewery. I don't do a ton of work. I go in. I get as much done as I can. And so I'm kind of looking forward to relaxing tomorrow. I do appreciate you listening to this extra long episode. Sorry if I got a little bit too ranty for you. The next one, I'll just talk about fairy tales and unicorns. We can just pretend like everything's fine. No, I won't. I'm just joking. Thanks again for listening to Life in Paradise podcast. I want everyone to go out there, have a great week, work your ass off, be honest, hold the door open for old people, help someone on the side of the road, recycle if you want to, and don't recycle if you don't want to. But either way, stop voting for idiot politicians. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo.